0: We'll be looking at jihadist terrorism, assessing the present and the future threat. Uh, so, a bit of a different shift in emphasis. Uh, we're joined by a distinguished panel. Um, Marcel Letras serves as the current Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Previously, he worked on Capitol Hill as a staffer on the House uh, Intel Committee and had a hand in shaping the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act. Uh, John McLaughlin served as the Deputy Director and Acting Director of the CIA from 2000 to 2004, incidentally overlapping with when I started as an Intelligence Analyst there. I also learned today, reading John's biography, that he currently serves as the Chairman of the CIA Officers Memorial Foundation. Uh, Some of you will be familiar with the Wounded Warriors Project or other organizations that help out uh, wounded veterans or families. The CIA Officers Memorial Foundation is the CIA's version of that. It supports uh, families of CIA officers killed in the line of duty. So John, thank you for that particular aspect of your public service mm. and Thanks uh, for mentioning it. it. And for those of you looking for a worthy cause, I commend the foundation to you. Uh, we're also joined by Dr. Quintin Wiktorowitz, who served as a senior director on the National Security Council staff. As a professor, I have used Dr. Wiktorwitz's uh, writings as required for my students when I'm lecturing on political Islam or Salafism or a jihadist ideology. He's one of the best, one of the most careful thinkers writing in English about these phenomena that I've read. Uh, and finally, we're joined by Dr. Mary Haybeck, uh, who served as a senior advisor on the National Security Council staff, where we were colleagues. Uh, she's currently with AEI and CSIS. Uh, Steve Hadley talked today about the need for thinkers who don't merely think outside the box, but who don't even know the box is there. <laughs> and I think Mary fits that description very well. Uh, one last... i take uh,
1: that as a compliment. Yes.
0: <laughs> one last distinguishing feature about our panel. Among all the panels at this conference, we are most well represented on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow any one of us. Hashtag self-promotion. Uh, Marcel, will you start our discussion?
2: Thanks, Paul. And uh, if I get three more followers, I think I'll have doubled my uh, my followership. <laughs> uh, but thanks, Paul. And I also wanted to thank Will and uh, Bobby Chesney and Michael Allen um, and the, the UT community for pulling this all together and, and frankly, for giving me an opportunity to, to participate. Um, I also think it's really terrific that um, the turnout from this community for something like this is so strong, Um, it's critically important um, to have that kind of interest um, in different parts of uh, of our nation because um, of the imperative to have strong support for intelligence and strong intelligence capabilities, and in my case, uh, uh, strong defense intelligence capabilities. And um, so for you all to take a a day and a half to, uh, to engage at this level and hopefully take away some insights and observations that um, can be brought brought uh, forward for um, where we want to head next on reform and transformation of, of uh, these capabilities, I think, is really important. Um, as, as Paul mentioned, um, I did have a couple of years on the House Intelligence Committee in the 2002 to 2005 timeframe, um, where I did have a chance to work um, with a number of the folks um, who have spoken uh, earlier and, and will speak tomorrow uh, in the the conference proceedings here. And so it's really neat for me to, to uh, um, both from that experience and from my experience now at the Pentagon in the Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence's office, um, to be able to um, be part of a conversation here, stepping back and thinking about where we are and where we want to go next. Also, want to acknowledge um, the heritage of the USDI's office by um, mentioning uh, how appreciative I am to be following behind the work of Steve Cambone, um, who established the office, and, and Director Clapper who spent several years um, taking the office to the next level um, over, uh, over the timeframe of uh, Bob Gates' tenure at the department, and working with Mike Vickers now who runs our office as the undersecretary and has, uh, as you all know, a, a tremendous uh, and tremendously important track record of um, performing um, important operational uh, acts on behalf of the nation here. So my purpose, really, I think, is to kick off the panel by um, hitting a couple of points, summarizing um, a perspective uh, from a, someone who's, who is currently drawing a paycheck from, from the U.S. government, and summarizing the point of view of where we uh, we, we at the Pentagon see the, uh, the current assessment of the of the global jihadist threat. So I'll, I'll summarize that, and then uh, first, and then secondly, hit a couple of points about how the defense uh, uh, intelligence capability is brought to bear um, in support of responding to this set of challenges. And then third and final, um, a couple of observations about some themes that I think are relevant for uh, thinking about what we do next on intelligence reform. And then uh, turn to the, to the rest of the panel I think to, uh, to hit a few points maybe in a little bit more of a provocative way. So first on the state of violent extremism, and I, I really should add here that um, in my office, um, as we pull together our own thoughts of the, of the threat, we really turn to um, Matt Olson um, and Nick Rasmussen and David Shedd and the, the, the stable of experts that they have um, available to work these issues day in, day out, um, hour after hour. And so um, I'm sure David and Matt won't be shy about grading the homework that I've done here a little bit uh, based on the expertise to, that I've relied upon from their offices. But let me just hit a few points on the state of violent extremism. I think the bottom line is there's been significant change, um, what a lot of people call metastasis within the global jihadist movement over the past year or two. Um, and at the same time, it's critically important to recognize that terrorism is, is really just one of a myriad of threats, um, as Jim Clapper said yesterday, um, probably the most complex threat environment that he has seen in his 51 years of service. I think that's a view widely shared um, across the senior officials in government now. Back to terrorism, though, the threat we see from an array of anti-Western terrorist groups is geographically dispersed, resilient, highly adaptive, even in the face of counterterrorism pressure. Ultimately, this less centralized network is likely to result in increased attempts to conduct attacks against U.S. and European interests overseas, and the possibility of attacks against the U.S. homeland remains a concern. In the Indian subcontinent across the Middle East and the Levant, and in northern and western Africa, Sunni jihadist groups are taking advantage of political turmoil governments and governments tr- in transition to try to achieve their goals. In recent years, al-Qaeda's core in, uh, al-Qaeda core's influence has declined, Osama bin Laden is deceased, and al-Qaeda as an organization has decentralized, with power and control moving to various regional affiliates and allies. The, disrupt- the disruption of al-Qaeda's core, its leadership, its facilitators, its hosts, is a direct result of focused and sustained pressure by the US intelligence community and military, as well as our partners and allies in the region. In Afghanistan and Pakistan, the group is trying to outlast counterterrorism pressure. We're watching al-Qaeda core closely to ensure it does not take advantage as we draw down in Afghanistan. Looking across the Middle East, our greatest concerns are those terrorist groups such as the Islamic State of Iraq and, and the Levant, ISIL, and the Khorasan group that have found sanctuaries in Syria in which to gather, train, and plot. ISIL has exploited the conflict in Syria and sectarian tensions in Iraq to entrench itself in both countries. The U.S. government believes ISIL poses a threat to our regional allies and to U.S. facilities and personnel in both the Middle East and the West. ISIL appears to be actively competing with Al Qaeda for influence and recruits, and so we can expect ISIL and AQ to consider and attempt significant attacks to outdo each other to gain greater appeal and notoriety. The Khorasan group, also based on Syrian territory, includes seasoned Al-Qaeda operatives believed to be plotting attacks against the US and our allies. We're also very concerned about the threat of foreign fighters returning from Syria and Iraq to home countries around the globe, including Europe and the United States, As the President noted at the United Nations recently, and as Jim Clapper mentioned last night and this morning, more than 15,000 foreign fighters from more than 80 nations. These foreign fighters' access to terrorist training, combat experience, and extremist contacts present risks to their home nations. In Yemen, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, probably continues to plan attacks against U.S. interests in the Arabian Peninsula, the the U.S., and Europe. In East Africa, Al-Shabaab remains resilient despite the recent gains made by African Union forces and the death in early September of the group's former Emir. In North and West Africa, we will almost certainly continue to see a rising threat from terrorist groups as they try to attack regional U.S. and Western interests. One veteran group, Al-Qaeda in the Lands of the Islamic Maghreb, AQIM, spreads Al-Qaeda's anti-Western ideology and has helped many new groups emerging from the Arab Spring. In Nigeria, Boko Haram attacks have increased in lethality, frequency, and reach in 2014. A number of governments in Europe and the US, uh, as well as us in the US, are also monitoring for homegrown violent extremists who use terrorists and religious propaganda to justify attacks in their home countries. While the global, global jihadist movement, which is mainly Sunni, deserves our close attention, I need to also mention Iran. Iran remains the world's largest state sponsor of terrorists and continues to support armed groups in the Middle East. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Forces, Quds Force, has supported Lebanese Hezbollah and fighters from Iraqi Shia militants. Hezbollah also continues to send operatives to other locations outside Syria to plan external attacks and operations. Elsewhere around the world, we see other terrorist groups that are motivated by nationalism, separatism, ethnicity, or right-wing ideologies. They're active in Europe, Latin America, Asia, and Africa. They continue to pose a threat, albeit a limited one, to U.S. and Department of Defense interests abroad. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, this range of violent extremist threats is in the context of an incredibly diverse and complicated range of threats and challenges facing the U.S. geostrategically, fragility and volatility across the Middle East, Russian revanchism, territorial and maritime disputes in the Asia-Pacific region, weapons of mass destruction, cyber attacks all buffeting the continued imperative of sustaining global uh, U.S. economic leadership. In short, um, terrorism and a range of other threats will be persistent, will be enduring, and the implication is that they will require a sustained, well-resourced, um, enduring response on the part of the United States as well. So. Let me mention a couple of points on this second item, which is um, in the context of how the U.S. government overall is is addressing the threat of uh, terrorism um, with a whole of government approach, how the the defense instrument and the defense intelligence instrument fits into that and the role of uh, the Department of Defense therein. For some years, the U.S. has pursued a comprehensive strategy of American leadership to address these challenges, involving all elements of America's national power, economic and financial, diplomatic, military, and intelligence. We've seen the strategy deliver results across a diverse range of theaters. Now, noting uh, in May, uh, President Obama at West West Point um, indicated uh, that for the foreseeable future, the most direct threat to America at home and abroad remains terrorism. He described in these uh, remarks at West Point An evolution underway in our counterterrorism strategy to more effectively partner with countries where terrorist networks seek a foothold. At the Defense Department, our support to counterterrorism efforts is uh, basically summarized in, in four primary areas. First, global coverage. We are providing a range of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities from Afghanistan to North Africa to find and fix terrorist networks. Second, indirect action and building partner capacity we're working closely with our partners to enable them to conduct effective CT operations. We've supported French forces in their campaign against AQIM in Mali, providing intelligence and other enabling capabilities, and we've trained, equipped, and enabled the African Union forces, AMISOM, in Somalia. These operations reduce the demand on U.S. forces and promote greater CT cooperation amongst our partners and allies. Third, direct action utilizing military forces, primarily special operations forces, to conduct counterterrorism missions, conventional military operations where necessary, special direct action missions, precision strikes on known terrorist targets, and building partner capacity. And fourth, um, relatively recent uh, piece of work, is the support to counter ISIL, leading key efforts in the counter-ISIL campaign to include airstrikes, advising and assisting Iraqi security forces at the request of the Iraqi government, and with the continued approval of Congress supporting the training and equipping of moderate opposition elements in Syria. We judge this whole government approach across many lines of effort, essential to putting pressure on and ultimately disrupting, dismantling, and defeating terrorist networks that threaten the U.S. and our interests. The intelligence and military instrument has been critical to to these successes we've had in order to continue to make gains against this, this threat. We'll need to continue to transform, continue to adapt, and to fully resource this strategy. And we're very focused on doing that in the defense intelligence arena. Um, finally, let me close by returning to the theme of the conference, um, as the global jihadist threat evolves, metastasizes, and endures, what does this mean for intelligence reform? Several key areas, to me, are most important. I'll just mention four of them and look forward to a discussion in the Q&A and as, as uh, appropriate. First. We must push for a culture of innovation and adaptation across intelligence agencies. Our adversaries are adapting every day. We must do the same to stay a step ahead. Second, we must continue to press for further integration across the intelligence community, of course, but also between the military and the intelligence agencies and across the whole of government. Integration really has been a a key contributor to much of the successes we've had against this threat since 9-11. Third, partners and partner capacity remain key force multipliers. We have to continue to build and invest in key partners. This involves becoming more agile and responsive to partner requests for intelligence support for their CT operations and optimizing the way we disclose information um, to our partners and foreign disclosure policies. I'd also mention here that Congress has been asked to support this network of partnerships from South Asia to the Sahel through a new counterterrorism partnership fund of up to $5 billion, which will allow us to train, build capacity, and facilitate partner countries on the front lines. The objective is to develop a more flexible response to meet emerging terrorist threats. And fourth and finally, we must continue to invest in key intelligence capabilities to ensure global coverage, strong counterterrorism and counterproliferation capabilities, protections against cybersecurity, and possible threats from inside the wire. I guess at the end of the day, I'd say that this last piece is the most important, the piece about um, sustained resources to, uh, in an enduring way to address what is proving to be an enduring challenge. And around the need to um, create an ability to have an enduring well-resourced strategy is, is, frankly, a need to continue to strive for a bipartisan consensus around these threats. So I'll stop there with the hope that uh, the conversation that we've ha- been having over the last couple of days helps lead us towards a a roadmap for what we do going forward to to drive the next decade of work on intel reform. Thanks.
3: Thank you. John. Well, first, uh, let me add my thanks to everyone else's thanks, to Will and everyone who organized this. I think uh, you would all agree, I'll bet, that the – I go to a lot of conferences, but I must say the quality of the uh, panels that we've had here so far has been exceptional. I hope we can live up to it. Uh, One of the things I like about going to conferences is you always meet interesting people and renew old acquaintances. Just a few moments ago before the break, first time this ever happened to me, I I don't know where he is now, but a man came up to me and said, I'm John McLaughlin too. (laughs) And it it turns out he is. And I said, well, where were your ancestors? Mine were in Donegal. So were his. we did everything but tell each other Irish jokes. <laughs> and uh, I sure could have used you, John, a few years ago when I needed a, if you had a passport. <laughs> when I needed a, an avatar. My favorite Irish joke. Uh, an Irishman comes out of a bar. It could happen. <laughs> All right. What does this have to do with terrorism? (laughs) Uh, Let me say first, that first it's wonderful to be freed of the uh, intelligence requirement to not talk about policy. So before I'm done, I'll talk about policy. Uh, Let me say second, that I think the problem we're facing in the jihadist world today is complex beyond, everyone says this, but I think it's complex beyond any metaphors we use. People say three-dimensional chess not enough, or they say um, Rubik's Cube, not enough. To me, uh, as someone who's looked at the Middle East for a long time, it's more akin to the sensation of walking into the middle of a barroom brawl. You don't know who started it. Uh, You're not sure you're in the right bar. (laughs) You're not sure who's fighting whom. You're not sure who's actually fighting and who's just watching. Uh, you're not sure where you should intervene and who would be on your side, and at the end of the day, you're not sure how you're gonna stop it or where it's gonna go from here. So the complexity of this, a friend of mine who's also followed the Middle East says, uh, I'm just taking notes. Uh, He's followed it for 25 years. So I think the problem we're facing here with ISIL in particular and I say this as someone who lived, as all of you did, but I, as I lived as deputy director through the uh, horror of 9-11 and worked with my agency on the aftermath. Uh, I think this ISIL problem is by any measure worse than the Al-Qaeda we faced then, even though what Al-Qaeda did was immeasurably worse than anything ISIL has done to us yet. Why do I say that? Because it has at least four things that Al-Qaeda could only dream of having. Uh, it has territory. It's a long dream of particularly Zawahiri to gain territory. Uh, they, they rented some for a while in Afghanistan, but they didn't have it. Second, they have money. I mean, One of the last pieces of intelligence I remember was a letter from Zawahiri to Zarqawi asking for money. These people have money, lots of it. They, uh, Marcel can give you the estimates, but it's it's certainly in the millions or hundreds of millions. Third, they have access. You've all heard the stories of, you know, probably 2,000 Western passports, among which there may be a hundred or so Americans. So they have access to us. And finally, they have motive. Number four, in that this competition with Al Qaeda. The way you win this competition is to outdo Al-Qaeda in the area where Al-Qaeda has been, made its mark. So when people debate, as they often do, whether they pose a threat to us, I say the answer to that question is, duh. Of course they do. When you hear the intelligence community says, they're not an imminent, we have no evidence that it's an imminent threat. Let me translate for you what that means. When the intelligence community says that, that means we don't have a piece of information here today which gives us the ability to confidently tell you that they have a plan for attacking us in some f- horizon we can tell you about. But that's not when you want to catch them. You don't want to catch them when they're lighting the fuse. You want to catch them way downstream, which was the, the strategy we followed after 9-11 and, and which allowed us, I think, to basically take down the 9-11 leadership of Al-Qaeda disrupting. So, at this point, I would say as an outside observer that we've turned in dealing with ISIL and some of the things that Marcel talked about, we've turned what was a looming disaster into at best a fighting chance against these guys. We have a fighting chance against them. Now, how do we get here? Uh, Will had asked me to talk about a paper I wrote 18 months ago, and I'm not going to go through that because that's history now, but. Let me just mention the four trends that then I said were crystal clear, even though none of us could see where they would end. Just ticking them off quickly. The battlefield changed when we left Iraq. It changed. and we were leaving Afghanistan, you ha- don't have the granularity from an intelligence point of view to, to have confident, on the ground knowledge of what these guys are doing and where they are and so forth. Second, governance changed throughout the MENA region, the Middle East, North Africa, in ways that many people have talked about now, opening up vast territories that were, as people have said already, ungoverned. Um, That's really important. And I'll give you some examples of that before we're done here today. Um, I mean, I did a study for, uh, helped a study for uh, a Norwegian oil company on a an attack they experienced at Inaminas, Algeria, which most people have not paid much attention to, but it was one of the most significant attacks terrorists have carried out. Uh, You know, about 30 terrorists, about 40 hostages were killed. This was a natural gas facility managed by uh, Statoil, BP, and Sonatrak. The interesting thing about it was that the guy who carried it off, a guy named uh, Mukhtar Bel Mukhtar, had put together a network of people from all across North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, Algerians, Mauritanians, Egyptians, Libyans, Algerians, porous borders, Um, changes of governance governance throughout this area. Third, they're learning a lot. They've gone to school on the mistakes they've made, and I'll just leave it at that. We can come back to it. But the whole idea that when they take over a territory, they have to do something. They have to pick up the trash and keep the electricity flowing. They've figured that out. Brutal as they are, they've figured that part out. And finally, the trend of al-Qaeda of uh, Iraq and, of course, Syria was obvious, but it was obvious about 18 months ago that al-Qaeda was, or that Iraq was deteriorating. I had military officers that I would speak with come back and say there's no border there anymore between Iraq and Syria. This is 18 months ago. And so those are all precursors of how we got here. What are the challenges ahead in dealing with ISIL? Let me mention five. Uh, We have to pay attention to what's going on in the Iraqi government. Uh, As an outside observer, I mean everyone says the new leader al-Abadi is doing pretty well People like him, but um, I'm not so sure. He hasn't yet found the way to appoint a defense minister and an interior minister. One of those has to go to a Sunni, or he's lost the Sunnis, uh, the tribals, who are essential to rolling back ISIS. And he's made a number of mistakes. I'll just leave it at that, but we can't applaud yet on that score. And if the Iraqi government doesn't come together, the fragile foundation for what we're doing is eroded, because that's why we're doing it, in a way. I mean, you have to have a government there that supports what you're doing on the territory you're doing it that think, can enact policies that will um, bring the country together ethnically. Second, the coalition. We are now leading, uh, at least in my memory, the most diverse coalition of people, countries, that we've ever led for this period of projected time, yes, In the Bush 41 administration, we had a coalition that was remarkable, but it didn't have to last this long against this complex a problem. Things will pop up in this coalition. Um, Third, we have to really match the capacity to adapt on the part of these terrorists. Um, When you attack terrorists, one of the things I learned is you don't always destroy them but you always change them. It's not like attacking tanks. You destroy tanks, they're gone. You attack terrorists, they adapt, particularly ones as committed as these guys. So as everyone says, I think the, our military is now saying, yes, they're blending into the population. They're dispersing their forces. We have to adjust to that adaptation. Fourth, we have to get over the boots problem. You just talk, start talking about, start, stop talking about boots. We're going to have boots in there at some point. Um, when I think back to those early days in Afghanistan that I think Steve Slick referred to, one of the secrets to success there was the capacity of special forces to come in with CIA teams and laser-designate targets for big military. We're going to need that before this is over, because we're hitting the load-hanging fruit at this point, I think. Uh, the targeting will get harder. I remember how hard it got in Serbia after a certain period of time in the Balkan Wars. And, uh, and just let me say something about bombing. When I was a soldier, I am I'm, I'm a great admirer of air power. Some of my best friends are fighter pilots. <laughs> but it has its limits. And the Pentagon has not oversold this. The Pentagon has been very honest in saying what we're doing with, from the air it has limitations. Uh, I was in Vietnam as a, uh, in the army. hadn't heard of the CIA yet, and I had a friend who was a B-52 targeting officer. Now a B-52 strike is three kilometers long and one kilometer wide. And I said, Jeff, plot on a map for me where we've been putting B-52 strikes over the last couple of years. And we, we were in three core tactical zone, which were the 12 provinces surrounding Saigon. And he showed me some of the worst areas. Every single inch had been covered by a B-52 attack. Yet these guys kept popping up. So get over the boots problem. Finally, worry about strategic surprise as a challenge ahead. Uh, What could that be? I'd be careful about talking about Baghdad as though it's invulnerable. Again, going back to my Vietnam experience, I was in Vietnam about two years ago and looked again at the Tet Offensive. Um, These guys worked their way through infiltration corridors into Saigon in 1968, carried out attacks all over the city for two or three days, and lost. They lost, but the war was never the same. So all these guys have to do is filter in carry out terrorist attacks around the city, and it could shake the coalition very badly, so strategic surprise ahead. Uh, worry about those things. Let me cover two other areas, as I'm pushing my time a little bit here, but two other areas. So here's, what do we need to do? Here's where I get to be the policy guy. And it's so easy to talk about all this stuff when you don't have to actually make it happen. (laughs) It's a joy. Keep the pressure up relentlessly. With terrorists of this sort, you can never let up. After 9-11, we never let up. You cannot let up. You cannot even talk about victory. You can't even talk about strategic defeat until 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 they become a nuisance. And that's how you know when you've won, when they become a nuisance. It's like communism. You never stamp it out, but you shrink it down to the point where no one cares anymore. Second, we've got to take back territory, like major territory. Mosul, for example. Why? Not because territory matters, but we have to show the world these, we have to show particularly those who are being recruited that these guys are not 12 feet tall. And the only way you can demonstrate that in this part of the world is to take it back. I can tell I'm upsetting someone out there. Third, we have to exploit their weaknesses. They have some. They too have to hold together a very diverse coalition of foreign fighters, old Baathists, and Sunni tribes, many of whom don't really want to do this, but these guys have the guns and they hate the current government. So we should exploit those weaknesses. Sharia law is a weakness for them. Uh, Fourth, We have to maintain something that several people, including uh, Admiral McRaven, talked about, worried about losing, and that is the incredible integration between our military and our civilian intelligence that's occurred over the last dozen years or so. This is a a glorious thing for our country, and it can wither if we're not careful. Uh, It's the secret to much of our success. And then finally, uh, you know, when I used to testify in Congress, particularly in the Armed Services Committee, which was my favorite committee to testify in, because I felt I had all of America arrayed in front of me in that uh, hearing room, every you know every every conceivable interest. But people would say sometimes this is all about intelligence, and I would say, well, actually, it's not. It's not. It's partly about diplomacy. It's about development policy. It's about assistance efforts, it's about coalition building. And so, you know, we used to say to defeat a terrorist group you had to do three things. You had to destroy the leadership, deny it safe haven, and change the conditions that give rise to the phenomenon. Okay, intelligence can help a lot with the first two, and so can the military. The third one, that's a whole of government problem, changing those conditions that give rise to the phenomenon. And actually it's more of a it's a more of a, a coalition problem beyond our own government. Uh, final points. Um, thinking about terrorism in the future, what should we worry about? Uh, again, this is more in the category of strategic surprise. I would say be careful about giving up on Al Qaeda. We tend to think that core Al Qaeda is defeated. Well, they're in a competition with ISIL now. They have an incentive to try and come back. So. We have to keep our eye on those guys. I've always felt when dealing with terrorism that we have to be very humble. Even in the days when I knew a lot about it at a granular level, I was very conscious of the fact that there was a lot I really didn't know, and I'm sure there is today as well. Um, Second, let's not let our focus on ISIL distract us from other parts of the world where this could go really bad. I alluded to one, North Africa. But let's think about Asia for a moment. At one point, Jamaa Islamiyah was very powerful. Now, thanks to the combined work of the United States, the Australians, the Malaysians, and others, it's a lot less now. But some of these guys in Asia are going to be inspired if ISIS succeeds. And we could see them popping up again. One of the things we did after 9-11 through a, a concatenation of events that I could lay out, but we found that it was an Indonesian, Gunawan was his name, who was training 17 operatives in Karachi who had been chosen from Southeast Asians to carry out an attack on our west coast. So, keep our eye on Asia. Uh, Finally, um, This networking phenomenon among terrorists, that deserves a lot of attention. Uh, I don't know how much we know about what it means operationally that Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula has associated itself publicly with ISIL, or that Tariqi Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban, has associated itself with ISIL. I don't know the intelligence behind that or what it means operationally. But both of those (coughs) groups have capacity that ISIL doesn't have. The first one has bomb maker capacity and a fellow named Al-Siri and others. The second one attempted to carry out a bombing of Times Square, uh, inspiring someone to do that. Um, so that networking phenomenon among terrorists uh, is one that deserves a lot of our attention. Uh, I'll leave for further discussion what this all implies for the intelligence community or for the intelligence reform.
0: Thank you. Quentin.
4: Well, John, John has inspired me to find another Quintin Wiktorowicz. So if there's one <laughs> in the audience, I'd, I too need an avatar, and I don't think I'm ever going to get one. Yeah, I think there's only one of me. Probably fortunate. Um, so I, I'm going to bring us back to the summer of 2005. We're about four years into the war against Al-Qaeda. Predominantly, it's been led by kinetic and intelligence activities and actions. And then the 7-7 tube attacks happened in London. And I was brand new to government. I think John was still at my home organization. I'd been there for about two months. And uh, Juan Zarate reaches out. I think he was new to his job and asked me to come in. We had this really very uh, formative conversation, both about how people were being radicalized and what the US government long term should be looking to do. And a lot of the focus on the conversation on the how people were being radicalized had to do with the very interpersonal dimensions to it. Uh, radicalization is not about block recruitment. It's not like Al Qaeda would issue messages and then a thousand people would just hear that message and, and flock to Afghanistan and Pakistan. Instead, typically you would have a radicalizing influencer at the local level who would take that global meta narrative and they would repackage it and pitch it at people in a one on one environment or in small groups such that they could resonate with them so they would play on that person's personal biographies their fears their aspirations to really make it a very very compelling argument now from a government perspective i find that really frightening because what can government do when the level of radicalization is in the niches of society in that very interpersonal space where government doesn't really have the assets the resources or even the the cultural proficiency to interdict and i think you know that was the first time i'd had a conversation with anyone about the need for a global counter movement we didn't need denouncements just denouncements of al-qaeda or 9-11 what we needed was a no kidding counter movement at high and grassroots level led by muslim communities which were on the front lines this was their sons and daughters that were being recruited and they were in those spaces and better able to identify when threats were emerging to help us through a partnership process. So we said that, and this is almost 10 years ago, where is the counter movement? We're nine, almost 10 years on, and it's not that there hasn't been a lot of activity. I mean, there have been denouncements left, right, and center since 9-11 by Islamic scholars, Muslim communities, advocacy groups, and there are a lot of different discrete programs to counter violent extremism in places ranging from Tunisia all the way to London in the United States, Canada, and actually globally. But we still don't have an interconnected global movement or counter movement against groups like ISIL and Al Qaeda. So what I'd like to do is postulate why that might be the case and then to provide a a few suggestions on where government might be helpful in developing that counter movement because I think in the context of ISIL and the way that that's developing, it's, it's very much needed. So why don't we have this counter movement? Uh, I think personally that there are three key reasons. One is something that I would call the paradox of moderation. The bad guys think about this all day long. They do this 24-7. It becomes who they are. Mainstream Muslims and moderates, on the other hand, have very ordinary lives like all of us. They have jobs. They have families. They take their kids to school, maybe, or to extracurricular activities. And then they try to have some kind of discretionary time where maybe they, uh, they relax a bit. So they're not on this 24-7, and they're not counterterrorism practitioners. So the very people we need aren't really incentivized to engage in this in a sustainable and ongoing way. We have to really consider what we're asking communities to do. And, and, and put yourself in their place. If someone came to you today and said, look, I know you're, you're going to school, you're working a job, you've got two small kids, you know, you're exhausted at 9, 9.30 at night, do you mind at like maybe 10 or 11 going online for the next three to four hours to counter ISIL? I mean, most people are just gonna look at you like, that's not my job, it's the government's job. National security is a collective good which means that regardless of whether a member of the community contributes to the fight against ISIL or not, they'll benefit from the programs that governments and others do. So one of the key questions is, how do you incentivize people to get mobilized on this issue globally? Uh, The second, I think, has to do with the way that counter-radicalization initiatives and programs that have come out have, have grown. They have tended to be very specialized, discrete programs. So you might have a youth outreach program in one city. You might have Islamic scholars in another place training imams about Quran and Sunnah and how you address the religious and theological elements of al-Qaeda's arguments. But these are not connected to one another. So they tend to have isolated impact against a phenomenon that, as John mentioned, is incredibly complex. There are so many variables involved simultaneously that even if your program is really good at the local level and you're pushing on it, it's not going to have strategic impact, which is, I think, what we all want to have. We want to have strategic impact on the radicalization environment. I want to give you two concrete examples of this, one at the grassroots level and then uh, another at the level of Islamic scholarship. Prior to my last job in government, I was based out of our embassy in London. We set up a pilot program to go into hotspots of radicalization where we knew recruitment was taking place to identify key influencers and then to build partnerships with them in a meaningful way to counter recruitment, again, at the very local level. So one of these key influencers had been recruited in 2001 by Al-Qaeda. In about November or December, he traveled to Pakistan crossed the border into Afghanistan to fight against U.S. Uh, forces, coalition forces, and was completely disillusioned by what he saw from Al-Qaeda and others. He was absolutely mortified. He turned around, went back to London, and set up a community organization to prevent kids from going down the same path. He was, he was and is still incredibly impactful And he has done a number of interventions that, no kidding, have stopped young people from going off to join groups like Al-Qaeda. The reason that he is so good at what he does is he is in that position to interdict in the interpersonal space because he's from the community and he knows the community. He was once telling me a story about a young 18-year-old who was being recruited by his older brother into Al-Qaeda. And the first question I asked him is, How did you know? Like, How did you know in the first place that this kid was in trouble and you needed to do something? And his response was very telling. He said, look, I've known this kid for six years. I know his two brothers. I know all of his friends. And I knew what he was saying to me wasn't coming from him. Someone was feeding him those lines. That incredible level of fidelity to be able to get that cue and that signal in the conversation that something's not right here and we need to look into it. So his greatest strength was that he was very, very locally focused. But because he was very locally focused, he didn't have any real connections to other hotspots of radicalization, to other people doing the same thing. He may have heard about other programs. And he may even have known people running them, especially in the UK, but maybe globally. But he was not doing it with them. So there was no network building and no movement. And what we're lacking is really these horizontal connections across all of these isolated programs. The second example is at the level of Islamic scholarship. And people may have been following this recently. So after, uh, over the last four weeks, we've had a series of fatwas and statements against ISIL. Uh, they've come from very diverse segments of the Muslim world, from a group of Saudi scholars, from Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayah who runs the Forum for Promoting Peace in Muslim Societies from Muslim groups in the United States to include in DC. And then last week, uh, a group of Islamic scholars and imams from New York City issued another, I think it was an open letter to al-Baghdadi. Again, a lot of religious treatment and arguments against the, the, uh, the ISIL ideology. This is all good. But again, the key challenge is that statements gets issued, but there's no vertical connectivity, there's no organic tissue that connects it to the grassroots level where somebody like my contact in London can take that piece of information, package it up, and frame it in a way that's meaningful to that young kid that he was trying to do the intervention with. So again, we're missing that vert- both the horizontal and the vertical connectivity. Uh, the third is, I think, partly the fault of government and how we try to empower communities to push back against groups like ISIL. The way that we give out grants, for example, through State Department, is we look for organizations with a demonstrated track record that tend to be very specialized and can show that they're doing good work against violent extremism and the idea is that we give them some money further catalyze it and then you you bring it to scale if it works you as charles Farr from the uk used to say you have to industrialize these kinds of things the problem is we weren't investing in network building what we were investing is isolated impact that was disconnected from other organizations, other efforts, and other groups. And in my view, these are just little drops in the bucket that don't create that kind of counter movement. And the way that we tried to inspire and get this counter movement over the last nine to 10 years was through convening and seeding initiatives. I know Will and others have heard this terminology. Convening in the sense that we would bring stakeholders together using the US government's convening power in the hope that that connectivity would naturally occur. And it almost never did. We would bring the groups together. We'd have a great time. Everybody would be really passionate. They'd thank us. Thank you so much for introducing us. And then they go back to their day jobs. They go back to their own organizations where they have their own priorities. And they, there was never any follow up, because there was, there was no one sitting there day in and day out telling them you need to work with each other. Seeding didn't work all that well either, because, again, the grants tended to be for very discreet programs and initiatives. So what can we do about it? So here are just three. I'm sure there are lots of of different things we can do, but these are three that occurred to me. One is we need to broaden the kinds of organizations that we fund to counter violent extremism. If we are serious about getting into this space, which the president, based on his UN speech and other speeches, seems serious about it, it's going to have to come with resources to be meaningful. And we should look beyond the traditional organizations and communities that focus specifically on countering violent extremism and look to invest in network-building organizations, organizations that may have no background or specialty in countering violent extremism or terrorism, but that very specifically specialize in movement-building kinds of activities. We've never really done this before. And that could impact the way we give grants, for example. Why not have a requirement from USAID or State Department that if you apply for a grant to counter radicalization, you have to do it as part of a coalition of a consortium and that you have to pledge that you're going to engage and involve other organizations to build out out the network in a way we're using our market presence potentially to drive that network building process. Uh, The second is bring new expertise into government. When you see a terrorism problem, the tendency is to bring in terrorism experts. But I would argue it's more than a terrorism problem. It's a mobilization problem, and that's an entirely different set of expertise. It's an entirely separate academic community, for example, with specialties and things that we really haven't tapped into, uh, I think, as government. And it's very telling that the best people by far across the US government that I've seen doing this sit in, in places like the Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties at DHS because they come from a community-based background and they come from that kind of tradition. They don't come from a counterterrorism tradition. They come with those organizing skill sets. And then the third and final suggestion is, is to bring in new tools and methodologies. Uh, I think we're still using a lot of the same approaches to countering violent extremism, and they haven't really tended to work. So why not try things like crowdsourcing? I've become a huge fan of crowdsourcing for a variety of different reasons. And the US government under the America Competes Reauthorization Act is authorized by Congress to use prize competitions to fulfill their missions. They don't even have to go back to the hill for money. They can use their currently appropriated funding to actually run a prize competition. And that not only helps you find solutions to counter violent extremism, but it also helps create a new community of interest. It creates passion. It identifies new talent, and I think can have that networking building function that, that I think is very necessary. So after 10 years, almost 10 years since that conversation with Juan Zarate, I'm like I'm still, I'm foaming at the mouth for the counter movement. I, I think it's possible, and I feel fairly optimistic that we can actually shape the future trajectory of the jihadist movement if we're able to build out those networks and that mobilization capacity.
1: Thank you. Mary. Uh, thanks. I'm, I'm the only one who's ah, – is this working? Okay, great. I'm the only one who's going to use PowerPoint, and uh, this means there's likely to be a disaster since I, I have some sort of anti-technology genes. So um, we've all been talking about the growing problem that we're having with terrorism, with Al-Qaeda, with ISIS. Um, uh, with jihadism in general. But I thought I would give um, just four quick slides here to give my take um, on this problem before I start. So this is al-Qaeda linked in the sense that these are um, Uh, declared affiliates, associated movements, or allies of Al-Qaeda back in 2011. And by terrorism, I mean serious terrorism, where there's lots of attacks going on and people being arrested all the time. Other countries not outlined in black, they also had problems with uh, terrorism, but there were minor problems with terrorism. So Indonesia and Turkey were arresting people all the time, Morocco is arresting people all the time, but they weren't suffering from serious terrorism. This is the problem as it looks in 2014. I have a question up there in Xinjiang because um, the uh, Chinese government claims that's Etim, which has some sort of linkages with Al-Qaeda, but uh, it's unclear who precisely is carrying out this violence. Um, but that is actually only a piece, uh, sort of the top of the iceberg of the problem we're facing. These are Al-Qaeda-linked insurgencies in 2011. I could probably, you know, given the technical differentiation between terrorism and insurgency, put Um, Yemen up there as well during this time frame. Uh, But certainly those three we were having problems with insurgencies linked somehow to al-Qaeda. This is the problem in 2014. That's why many people sense we're having a problem with al-Qaeda, with ISIS, (coughs) with jihadism in general, because we are. And we have a terrible growth in this problem since 2011 in uh, particular. So the question is, um, why are we facing this? And a lot of this has to do with issues beyond the control of the American government, uh, beyond the control of basically any one entity at all. It has to do with things like the Arab Spring, um, with the creation of a lot of uh, different ungoverned spaces that allowed the growth of these, of these groups and allowed them to uh, spread their violence and their hatred to places that attempted to reject them, Um, but found themselves through a a lot of murder and intimidation forced, um, in some cases, to put up with these guys. Um, Sometimes it has to do with a a loss of capacity on the part of partner nations. Um, Sometimes it has to do with uh, lots of things, in fact, that we have nothing to do with. But I would like to argue that there is one piece that we do control and something that could be changed and might help us In our fight against these guys and some of it has to do with intelligence but a lot of it has to do with something that's really not about information per se it's about the analytical framework that we've adopted in order to understand al-qaeda and isis so the analytical framework there's actually two entirely separate views of al-qaeda that one might adopt the first of those views Is in fact the majority view, and it's the view that's accepted within the government today, at least as far as I know. It's the one that was uh, best expressed in the 2011 National Strategy for Counterterrorism. And it's been re expressed over and over again by our top leaders uh, in the counterterrorism field. That is, that Al Qaeda consists of basically three parts Um, a core uh, that's concerned with attacking the United States, and that is basically a terrorist group, affiliates, that are sort of more locally focused guys that have some kind of relationship with that core, but it's unclear what. And then uh, these so-called adherents that are the sort of um, people who get radicalized and go off and support these guys, sometimes through uh, lone jihadism. Uh, note the distinction there. Uh, the core are in fact terrorists, right? because they want to carry out terrorist attacks, and they're focused mostly on the United States. The affiliates, on the other hand, are carrying out something more like local insurgencies, right? So they're, they're also using terrorism um, in many places, but they're basically local insurgents. They want to overthrow the local governance. There's a second, completely different view of Al-Qaeda that I would call the minority view. There's a very small group of us who hold it. Um, I proudly claim membership in this Tiny little minority um, that believes that Al Qaeda is more than this—that it it is both leadership and field armies of something that's more connected, and it is intent not just on carrying out terrorist attacks against the United States, but on carrying out insurgencies in order to overthrow all of the local leaders of Muslim majority countries. This is in fact the expressed desire and description that Al Qaeda gives of itself. So I'm not, you know. Uh, saying anything that is not out there. This is what Al Qaeda says about itself, and it sa- this is what it says about it, its goals and objectives. These two visions have very, very different policy prescriptions attached to them. The first one says that what we should be doing is counterterrorism, right? And by the way, helping out partners, our local partners who are faced with this insurgency from uh, Al Qaeda, ISIS, and other groups that are associated with them. No counterinsurgency, however, is necessary from the perspective of the United States because this is a local issue. These are local problems. They require some kind of counterinsurgency issue, but we don't need to be engaged in that. The second view, however, says we have to be doing a whole lot more because this problem is not just a local problem. It's also a global problem. In fact, it argues there is no distinction between local and global. What is local one day? really depends on a decision that we have no control over whether it becomes global or not. The third thing that I would say about this is that it predicts very different futures from Al Qaeda. The first predicts that Al Qaeda itself will focus on attacking the United States. And the fact that we have prevented them from doing so is testimony to the fact that we have spent so much time working on this very issue. So I don't want to say anything about counterterrorism. It's been excellent right down the line. But it also says the affiliates are primarily, if not exclusively, focused on local issues. They're not focused on attacking the United States. That's what it predicts. The second predicts something quite different. It says that both will have global and local focuses. That there is no distinction between the two. So when you look at a local group, it could become a global group. And that this distinction is one of the problems that our government would have in understanding it because we've made this distinction ourselves. So that's three. The fourth thing that I think we can say from this uh, distinction here, is uh, what difference does this make um, in our actual actions? Well, first of all, you have to understand that from an intel perspective, this is not really about information or intelligence per se. We have all the same intelligence, we all you know, have the same information across the... Uh, the board there is plenty of information for people to make up their own (laughs) minds. What this is really about is an analytical framework. The way we are envisioning the enemy makes all the difference. And that is based on analysis. It's based on interpretation. It is not based on intelligence, per se. So we're not facing here an intelligence problem. We've talked a lot about the need for greater integration, about having too much information, about needing the tools necessary to deal with a lot of problems, very difficult problems, the need for adaptation, and so forth. But this is actually not about any of those things, per se. This is about having the right analytical framework in order to understand the enemy. And finally, I would say four things about this um, very, very quickly. Al Qaeda is a learning organization. It is, as you say, very adaptive. It's learning all the time, it's adapting all the time to what we do and also to the circumstances around them. They're swift to take advantage of our missteps, but also of new opportunities. Immediately after the Arab Spring, you saw the messaging change. You saw all kinds of people moving all over the place. Just recently, we learned about this Khorasan group. I was shocked uh, to read in the newspapers that the Khorasan group, in fact, had appeared in Syria in 2012. So this is not like a new thing. It's been there for over two years. I, I read in the Egyptian newspapers about um, folks from Afghanistan, Pakistan uh, that were sent there apparently by Zawahiri. Uh, Lots of captured documents that talk about them being sent to Libya, uh, working in Sinai. They adapted to the new opportunities uh, presented by the Arab Spring. The second thing I would say is Al Qaeda seems to have a plan and how to do things and how to take advantage of these situations and how to build out from them. Uh, when I think about uh, the way that many of these groups op- uh, operate and the similarities between the ways they do things, um, it could be that they're simply learning from each other, but it could be, and we do have some captured documents that say this, that they have some kind of uh, plan that they believe that they're implementing on a global basis. Now, whether we believe that's possible or not is beside the point. They think it is. You know, as sort of full of hubris as that is, they believe it is. So, captured documents from Mali talk about a global plan uh, for implementation that was sent around to everybody that they were supposed to be following. Thirdly, There's an important asymmetry between Al-Qaeda and ourselves that I think we need to take into consideration when seeking to understand this group. Their objectives are maximalist objectives. They want the whole thing. Their views of the war is that it's existential. This is not a war of choice, in their words. This is about the very existence of what they say is Islam, the very existence of the entire uh, community. And this justifies the use of any means. They believe any means are allowed because of the existential threat and because of the objectives they seek uh, to achieve. And finally, I would say, Al Qaeda does not think like we do, and we cannot assume that they will do things the way we would do them, or that they'll have the kinds of concepts and ideas about what they want that we think are achievable or we think that they should be uh, seeking to achieve. In my opinion, unless we learn to think like the enemy, we're going to always find ourselves behind that learning curve. Thank you.
0: Thank you. In the interest of time, I think I'm gonna ask simply one short question of our first presenter and then hand it over to the audience for Q&A. Marcel, I'd like to return to you. uh, Essentially, my question is, would you like to respond? (laughs) Um, I I think in some of the comments we heard, there is, I'd say, an implied criticism of the current administration's approach to counterterrorism. Uh, If indeed uh, we need to keep the pressure on, get over our uh, problem with boots on the ground, if this map is an accurate depiction of what we've seen grow over the last few years, uh, is the administration's approach to counterterrorism effective?
2: Uh, Thanks, Paul. I, um, I don't have too much to say. I think the important point that came out across all of the presentations is the uh, is the adaptability of the adversary here, and consequently the need on our part for um, a similar adaptability, an agility, um, and an ability to find ways to, to build into our systems and processes, uh, a way to, to change, but to also do so by being a step ahead. Um, the part of that adaptability, I think, needs to be a recognition um, that as times change um, as the adversary shifts its focus and shifts its capability um, that we can do the same. And I think a key key area of focus for the US government um, in the next uh, couple of years really does have to be the the emphasis on by, with, and through, the partner capacity Mm -hmm. piece. Uh, Mary gets at this a little bit in her, um, her commentary about the need to think a little bit about the aspects of this problem set that may lend themselves to counterinsurgency principles, and I, I think uh, building partner capacity is uh, an incredibly important mm. piece of that. I mentioned in my uh, in my opening comments um, um, that the president has announced and asked Congress to uh, to support a, a counterterrorism partnership fund. that could be uh, up to five billion dollars of multi-year funding that could go towards um, uh, a, a robust program of, of building partner capacity. Um, if, that, if that can be done and scoped right, that's a powerful tool in, in the toolkit um, and, and can allow us to, to lean forward with this agility that's necessary. Thank you. From the audience, uh, up front, um,
5: we'll, we'll,
0: have a, we'll have a microphone here in a second.
5: Thank you. Uh, this is a question for Marcel and John. Oh, you can't hear me? <laughs> <laughs> we can hear you. Is that better? It's turned on. Okay. A question for you, uh, too. Um, I'm an NBC analyst on TV, and I was on this weekend, and they asked me if the U.S. strategy was winning, and I said no. And there's some data points here. B-1 bomber flying in slow circles over Kobani with the pilot looking for targets with his eyes. Major element of our deterrent strategy is out plinking for targets. Um, And as a veteran of the coastal air campaign, I can tell you that's disturbing. Warping of how the air power is generally used. Um, At the strategic level, News today is that the uh, ISIS crowd has got the, the, uh, uh, their opposition corralled up in the eastern edge of Kobani. Are we not at a point here where short-term lack of success is going to disable our ability to succeed at the strategic level?
3: Short-term, would you say that again? Short-term
5: what? Not make, Losing at, at the short-term. Kobani goes away. Not strategically significant. It's a tactical battle. But ISIS, after they take it, can say, Paper Tiger's been wounded and beaten now. Um, we, then all the people on the margin who might have gone in the coalition or who might have cooperated more tend to hold back, and the sheikhs who are demanding help right now say Maybe it's time to put down our weapons, as they threatened to do. Am I right or am I wrong?
2: Um, look, so I think the the important thing to keep stressing here is one that um, many U.S. government officials, from the president Don down, and to include uh, General Lloyd Austin, just today during this conference, had a, a press conference to provide an update from the Pentagon on. Uh, where things stand. The important point here is um, uh, to make sure that people understand that this is a, a long-term effort, and it's a multifaceted effort. For, for us, it's four lines of effort. Um, one of these is, is the current uh, airstrike activity. A second is to look at uh, supporting Iraqi security forces, and potentially, um, as, uh, as that effort matures, migrating into an ability to train and equip moderate opposition forces in Syria. A third line of effort is getting after the financing, um, the ideology, the counter, counter ideology, um, and the flow of foreign fighters. And a fourth effort is humanitarian. All of this um, is not built up um, in, in days or weeks. It's, a, it's months, uh, if not years. And it's just important for us to, uh, to keep, uh, keep emphasizing that point. Um, which gets to the question of resources that I mentioned earlier. Um, an effort along, along uh, that kind of a time frame require, does require a commitment. Um, it does require a sustained level of resources um, and a consensus amongst uh, both the, the executive branch and the Congress that this is a, a fight worth having. And it is because of the challenge that we face. Yeah, uh,
3: yeah nothing I'm saying. Uh, should be taken as uh, a criticism of what our military is doing. In fact, uh, what I admire is that they're very clear uh, about what we're doing and what the limitations are. I read General Austin's comments too, and he he was about as straight as you could be on this in terms of estimating uh, the chances for Kobani falling. Um, If it falls, I think it will be a big symbolic victory for the other side, no question about it. No question about it, big recruitment victory. I'd agree with what Marcel said. Uh, This is a time when our national leaders, starting with the President, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, are really going to have to talk to the public about this being a long-term struggle that will require persistence. Um, We need to, and, and when I say get over the boots problem, I'm not talking about going back to Iraq in the strength that we were there at some point. But if you're using Apache helicopters, your risk level is going up. If one goes down, you have, a f- you have a rescue problem. You have then a force protection problem. At some point, uh, and I, for all I know, we are planning for this. I, I don't see anything wrong with having a, you know, everyone will say escalation and uh, slippery slope, a couple of combat brigades in, rever- in reserve for a contingency that we cannot yet foresee is kind of how I'm thinking about it. And if Kobani falls, one of the lessons, not one that we can respond to right away, is that when we get into those kind of bombing campaigns and they've adapted their tactics, that's when you really need someone on the ground. And it's probably not going to be Americans in Syria. Then you get into the problem of the the long-term problem. Presumably as we train this force, which I hear will take about a year, we think in Saudi Arabia. Now Turkey appears to have agreed to house some of that training. Presumably one of the things we'll be trying to train them to do on the ground is to help our air, but that's a lot of time between now and then, and the other guys aren't going to stand still. So that's why I talk about red teaming, what is the strategic surprise we're going to deal with here, because it's not going to be a smooth path.
0: I'd like to gather several questions at once so we can kind of get in as many as we can. Uh, So let's do three questions. Uh, Ambassador, number one. Anybody around? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Dan, Dan in the back. And then uh, one of the cadets. Yeah,
3: you in the middle. OK. Yeah, Jody Charney, Uh Mary, for you, uh, thank you for your presentation. It was very good. Uh, on the existential threat that you spoke of that the, uh, the uh, Islam feels, and perception, obviously, is from the United States, could you elaborate on that? Well, I mean, what, 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 are, what, is, what, does that, what does that really mean when you speak of that threat?
0: Dan? Go
4: ahead. Uh, Thank you, gentlemen, for being here today, and uh, Mary as well. Uh, I'm a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm studying international uh, security here at UT. And I have uh, two questions for you. One, what would you say to um, a college student like myself who's interested in going into a career field in intelligence? uh, What are some of the characteristics you look for for young young men and women? Uh, Some of the characteristics or experiences that you want in them. And the second thing I wanted to ask is more of a tactical question. Why have uh, Arab countries not stepped up and provided uh, physical boots on the ground to push back ISIS or to fight some of the terror groups? And why are we being relied on it so heavily? And what I could ask.
0: Hi, my name is Francis Ambrosio. I'm a cadet in my fourth year at West Point. I'm planning on entering a ground combat branch in the Army. Um, my question is kind of two pronged as well. It's about the boots idea. Uh, how do we actually sell that to the American people, who arguably are kind of tired of having boots on the ground in the Middle East, fighting long wars without much conclusion, without you know without an attack on the homeland? How do you sell that? Second. Um, how do you pay for it, right? We're always, we're, the Army's worried that, you know, without a budget agreement, sequestration could hit in the second round. How do we, how do, so how do we sell it, and how do we pay for it? Okay, okay. why don't we start with Marion, just go on down the line.
1: Okay, um, so the, the existential threat is felt by Al-Qaeda. They believe that this war is an existential threat, and the way they frame it is it's um, an attempt by the United States to destroy Islam. That's how they frame it so it's it's based on this that they believe any means are allowable <laughs> against us. that's well um, i I've seen lots and lots of statements from them, public statements saying we'd love to use nuclear weapons against the United States or wMD of some sort. So when they say, we feel an existential threat. We believe this is an existential threat. The response is, we need to have nuclear weapons. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, should I go on to the other one? Uh,
0: other let's uh,
3: first go down the line and see okay. if they, uh, yeah. Can I answer the one about uh, intelligence officers? Sure. Uh, you know, the qualities you're looking for depend a lot on what you're planning to do. But fundamentally, the common characteristics that someone is looking for are Things like flexibility, Uh, that is, you're going to move around a lot, problems change, you hear about the world here, it's always shifting, so you might be working on Pakistan one day and then something blows up in central Europe and someone says to you, sorry, you're going there now. Uh, Teamwork, because even though you uh, get to stand in the spotlight now and then, an awful lot of the work you do is involved with others in teams because you're increasingly in the integrated environment that Jim Clapper talked about, bringing capabilities together across the board. Thick skin, uh, because uh, you're in a profession where you are dealing with incomplete information, deception on the part of the adversary, and a capacity to look ahead. You're gonna make mistakes sometimes. It's mathematically certain. Everyone's gonna come down on you. You have gotta be ready to work through that. Thinking back to 9-11, I was just thinking the other day, or as we were talking about all this, one of the hard things was keeping focused on the mission and driving ahead, knowing that you had to stop the next attack while simultaneously being blamed for the last one. So that, juggling all of that, you have to have the capacity to do that. Uh, Substantive grounding. I haven't mentioned maybe the most important thing, which will seem a little technical. Communication skills, ability to write quickly, brief quickly, uh, take complex ideas and boil them down into things that are simple but not simple-minded, and present them to anyone from the president to desk officer at State Department. Uh, those are some of the things. Uh, why don't Arabs step forward to help us? Uh, I'm not sure. We don't know that they won't yet. I, I wouldn't say that yet. That gets into the long-term nature of this. Thinking back to Saudi Arabia, uh, they They weren't all that, uh, they weren't as helpful as we'd like them to be before 9 11. And after 9 11, they were more helpful, but not as helpful as they became in 2003 after it became apparent to them that they were directly threatened too. I think they actually see, the Arabs now, actually see a direct threat. I I think they feel threatened by ISIL. And I could walk through that if we took more time, why they do. So I I wouldn't count them out yet. You know, I, I just wouldn't do that yet. Um, and uh, I don't, I can't read my own writing on what the last question was. <laughs> there was one more question.
2: I, on the I, I can do a little bit on that. Yeah. Uh, John, if I could just briefly add um, on, on the point about career, uh, the question about careers um, and preparing for a career in intelligence, I also would advise uh, thinking broadly about um, what an intelligence career is. Um, there's a mili- there's the military aspects. There's a lot of different ways to serve on intelligence issues in the Department of Defense, in uniform and out of uniform, and in other venues. There are folks in this room, John Rosenwasser, Joe Whitehead, and others who are working intelligence issues from a congressional standpoint. And uh, all of those roles are um, they're they're each different. They're unique um, uh, takes on the on the issue set. They're incredibly important um, contributions to be made. Um, go ahead, John.
3: I just want to add to that because I know there are students here, uh, cadets and others. I would broaden it beyond intelligence. I would say if you're thinking about a career, a career in foreign affairs of any sort, public service to assess being a, a person in the media who analyzes foreign affairs, no better time to do this in my lifetime. I tell my own students, I envy you graduating into this world. I wonder. What will be the symbol of your generation? My generation symbol, Berlin Wall, piece of it outside my school. What will be the symbol of your generation? And uh, you know, America's always operate on a big idea. You know, whether it was independence, save the union, defeat the Nazis, contain the Soviets. I don't know that we have the big idea right now. And so I would challenge students, be the one who writes The article George Kennan wrote, different conclusion, but be the one who comes up with the big idea that drives our national security strategy. There has to be one out there.
0: I think that's a a great place to end uh, for the purpose of time. Before we uh, thank our panel, I want to make a note about our next event. Uh, Over the last day, we've heard some criticism of Congress and its role in intelligence reform and counterterrorism. Uh, now we get to hear Congress respond. Uh, Congressman Mac Thornberry is uh, giving our keynote address in just 15 minutes uh, on uh, Congress over the last decade, help or hindrance. Uh, we'd like to thank you all for remaining for this keynote address. If you choose to step out for a short break for a restroom or coffee, please do mark your seats. We're expecting additional visitors, and we don't want you to lose your seat. So please do mark your seats if you choose to take a short break. Let's, uh, please join me in
5: thanking our panel.